Welcome. You are listening to The Mindful Minute, meditations created for everyday joy. I'm Meryl Arnett, mama, meditator, and head of mindfulness for Shoreline Meditation App. This podcast is recorded from my live Monday night meditation class, where we have a brief discussion followed by a 20-minute guided meditation. If these meditations support you and your practice, please consider donating to the show to support its continued growth, new offerings, and its ever-expanding team. You can find the link in today's show notes or simply visit merylarnett.com and click on podcast. All right, y'all, let's practice. Welcome, you guys, to another episode of The Mindful Minute. Thanks for tuning in. As we get started, I just want to say a huge thank you to our sponsor, Mindful and Modern. Mindful and Modern is a company that focuses solely on meditation products. Their co-founders all meditate daily, and they design and launch every product based on their own personal experience. Their products are designed with a simple, modern aesthetic. They offer a full range of seated meditation practice accessories. So you'll see Zafu cushions, cushion sets, bamboo kneeling benches, even chairs with extra back support for extended sessions. Y'all know I love that. And they have some really decadent smelling candles. Give them a look, mindfulandmodern.com. They've got everything you need to support your practice. And if you use code MINDFULMINUTE10, that's MINDFULMINUTE10, you'll save 10% on your entire order. Mindfulandmodern.com. Check them out for all of your meditation needs. Hey, you guys, welcome to the Mindful Minute. I have got an extra special interview for you guys today. I am talking with Dr. Kristen Neff. She is the head of the Self-Compassion Research Lab at the University of Austin, Texas. She's literally written the books on mindful self-compassion. And if you've listened for any amount of time, you've heard me reference her. I have gone through a lot of her work myself. I share a lot of her teachings in my own classes. And she's written a new book called Fierce Self-Compassion. This book landed for me at a moment when I really needed it in my own life. And I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. We talk about the two sides of self-compassion, tenderness and fierceness, why this is so important for women in particular. We talk about the interplay between personal and collective compassion and the action that this inspires for social justice movements. We talk about the interplay between the logical and the more intuitive sides of a meditation practice. And Dr. Neff leads a self-compassion meditation break practice at the end. It's a really fun interview. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I hope you guys do as well. Let's listen. Well, Dr. Kristen Neff, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I'm really delighted to get to explore a little bit about the new book you've written. And I'm wondering if maybe before we get started, you could tell us a little bit of your background around how you started in mindful self-compassion and the foundation of your work, and then we'll move into this new book. Sure, sure. 
Well, um, I started learning about self-compassion when I first learned mindfulness meditation. So it was the last year of graduate school and my life was kind of a mess. I just gotten a divorce and I was under a lot of stress with school and everything. And, um, you know, I'd heard that mindfulness was good for stress. So I went to a, a, it was actually a Buddhist group in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh. And, uh, you know, I wasn't that surprised when the woman leading the course started talking about compassion because I knew that like Buddhists were into compassion, <laughs> but I'd never even thought about self-compassion before. She, she was in the tradition, yeah, because in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh, who talks a lot about self-compassion as well as other compassion. And I was like, wow, that's strange. I never, you know, well, let me give it a try. And so I tried being intentionally kind and supportive to myself during that difficult time in my life. And I was just blown away by the almost immediate difference it had in my ability to cope with all the, the emotional challenges I was experiencing. So uh, then when I got a job at the University of Texas at Austin, I decided I wanted to research it, which I started doing about 20 years ago. And then about the last 10 years, I've been focused more on how to teach people to be more self-compassionate. Mm. And so you've taken this foundational work that you've done, and I, I've worked through the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook myself. I, I have also found that work to be tremendously impactful in just the way I move through day-to-day -day life. And now you've written this new book, Fierce Self-Compassion. So how does this interplay with the original work? Right. So um, compassion in general, whether it's for self or others, is concerned with the alleviation of suffering. That's it's kind of the motivational engine of compassion. And what I started noticing is that when people thought about self-compassion, they really only thought of its tender side. You know, and there is that side, the side of self-compassion, which is about self-acceptance, about warmth, um, kind of, you know, supporting ourselves emotionally or sometimes giving ourselves a break if we're, if we're striving too hard. Uh, but people weren't so aware of the other side of self-compassion, which is the action-oriented side, right? So yes, we accept ourselves. That doesn't mean we necessarily accept our behaviors or accept the situations we're in, right? That I noticed there was a lot of confusion about that, that people didn't understand, for instance, that the motivation for change is a really important part of self-compassion. Or standing up for yourself or speaking up or, you know, like, for instance, when the Me Too movement, when that happened, I thought this is this is a self-compassion movement, you know, or the Black Lives Matter movement. When people stand up and say, hey, that's not OK. You know, we, we need to be protected. We, we deserve better. These are self-compassion movements. And so that's why I decided to write. Um, my book on fear, self-compassion, not only because people were confused, but because of all the social justice movements going on. And, you know, it's not enough for mindfulness people or compassion people to say, oh, yeah, just sit on your you know, cushion and be happy. Uh, we need also to make really important social change at the same time. One of the things I noticed in this book was the interplay between personal work and collective work. And I think that sometimes that gets lost within just meditation practice. It seems so solitary. You're doing it for the most part in your house, by yourself, on your own cushion, for yourself, except that it's not actually for yourself. And so how does that interplay show up for you? Yeah, well, so, you know, uh, if you come from a perspective that, and for me, it, it does come from a Buddhist perspective, but it doesn't have to be Buddhist. If you, if you come from a perspective 
where you see yourself as a larger interdependent whole, right? Then this idea that what we do only affects us or that, you know, we just turn inward and not outward, or we just turn outward and not inward. None of that makes sense, right? When you, when you change your mindset so that you realize we're all part of a larger whole, then of course, you know, we, when we work with ourselves to alleviate suffering, we also have to work for the alleviation of suffering of others, of our planet. We also understand we have the wisdom to know that what we cultivate inside impacts people outside and vice versa. Right. And that and that that wisdom of interconnection is really key to self-compassion or to compassion for others. In fact, this is what differentiates compassion from a sense of pity, feeling sorry for, where there's not the understanding of common humanity or interconnection, uh, which is really essential for compassion. Hmm. And so as I initially understood mindful self-compassion. I have been working and thinking and playing with these three components that you originally laid out of mindfulness, self-kindness, and common humanity. And then in the new book, you have this lovely chart that I've already copied and stuck (laughs) on my wall. And that's the marker of a nerd. The nerd likes the chart. (laughs) You know, I love a chart. Well, it's helpful. You know, it's helpful because one of the things that I think can happen in these really deep concepts is we can get lost in our own understanding or lack of understanding. And we sort of forget what we know or don't know. And the chart was like, okay, so remember how that it doesn't show up in a linear only this way. Right. Talk us through how that works. Yeah. So, so the three main components of self-compassion, and by the way, just some mindful self-compassion refers to our program, but in general, we just talk about it as compassion. So there are three main components. Well, the reason it's kind of confusing because one of the components is mindfulness, right? So, so mindfulness, it's not the same as self-compassion. I, I know you talk a lot about mindfulness on this podcast. Mindfulness is more general, Compassion is all the same to suffering. So you can be mindful of a beautiful sunny day. You know, compassion isn't relevant. And also mindfulness is a little more focused on the experience where compassion is a little more focused on how you're relating to the experiencer. So they're very overlapping, but they aren't identical. But we need mindfulness to have self-compassion or compassion for others, because especially when there's suffering present, especially our own suffering. We don't want to go there. We don't want to accept it. We don't want to acknowledge it. We want to distract ourselves or we want to fight against it. So if we don't have mindfulness, which is the ability to say, hey, I'm really struggling. I need some help here, right? If we don't have that awareness, we actually can't begin to give ourselves compassion. Also, mindfulness provides that that perspective, right? Instead of being lost in things, we're like step outside of ourselves and see with some space around it. Okay, you know, she's having a hard time. So there's mindfulness. And then there's also, which I mentioned before, this sense of common humanity, this interconnection in addition to the kindness. Um, But these three elements can manifest very differently depending on, you know, what type of suffering we're trying to alleviate. (laughs) So if it's it's tender self-acceptance, that that's really what we need, then the the components uh, manifest as loving, connected presence. Right, the loving, the kindness is loving. The common humanity helps us feel connected, and mindfulness gives us presence. But just to give one example, when when these components are aimed at protecting ourselves from harm, that's how we're alleviating our suffering. The kindness is brave. This is what gives us courage. I like to call it mama bear self compassion. Right, 
this is that ferocity or fierce self-compassion, that ferocity, ferocity that rises up and says, hey, that's not okay. And I'm willing to protect myself. I'm willing to stand up for myself to do something. Common humanity in this case is really interesting, helps us feel empowered. One of the problems when we, feel, when we feel all alone and isolated is we feel like it's just us, you know, we're insignificant. But when we remember, hey, we're, we're human beings, worthy of respect like other human beings, it's not just us. And especially when we actually band together in social movements with common humanity, like I said, the Me Too or Black Lives Matter movements, this is actually very empowering. And so it's interesting that the wisdom also gives us power. And then mindfulness, you know, mindfulness has a big role to play in in, um, protecting ourselves because mindfulness is what allows us to see clearly, what allows us to say, hey, what's happening? It's not okay. I don't care if it happened for, you know, generations before, like with the Me Too movement, you know, well, that's just the way men are. It's kind of part of the system. And it took a lot of mindfulness for a woman to say, hey, that's not okay. You know, and really look at it clearly and call it out. And mindfulness is what gives us the clarity to do that. So that's, you know, so the difference between loving, connected presence and brave, empowered clarity, they're different on the outside, but they're coming from the same power source, you might say, which is the source of compassion. You know, I I think that this is calling out such an interesting component in a practice. One of the things that I encounter a lot is I teach meditation. So I have a lot of students and a lot of times I get questions around, am I not supposed to feel angry at some point, right? Will I overcome this emotion or these, the, uh, you know, I'm going to, in air quotes, bad emotions, the more uncomfortable ones, can I overcome them and be this Buddha on the mountaintop that feels no discomfort. And I think what you're highlighting is that that's not the goal in a practice. Exactly. Well, and in fact, anger can be a really important tool of compassion, as long as the anger is being used to alleviate suffering and isn't causing the suffering, Mm -hmm. right? Now, obviously, often it does get out of hand. Either we're so angry, we're harming ourselves, or we do something to others to harm them. But the energy of anger, which is really, again, that's that fierce, protective energy of, you know, don't harm me or don't harm my kids, wherever it's aimed. That's a really powerful source for compassion. I mean, if you aren't angry at what happened last year with George Floyd, for instance, then, you know, you're asleep. (laughs) You need to be angry. That doesn't mean that you need to go on a rampage or anything, but the energy of anger, first of all, it energizes us, it, um, it focuses us, it helps us be brave, it motivates us to do something. We just don't want to denigrate other people or cause harm to others with our anger. So, it, And it is tricky, and I get it wrong all the time. As you'll know if you read the book, I'm not claiming to be an anger expert. I get it wrong all the time. But it's really important, and I think especially as a woman, it's really important for us to own our anger and not be ashamed of it and not think of it as something bad that we need to get rid of. It's a friend. We just want it on our side. <laughs> you know, so... How does that show up in a practice? Like, how do we work with anger in a meditation practice? Yeah, so I actually tried to develop a few different meditations and practices where we can actually do that. And this kind of comes from my own work, dealing with my own anger. Something happened in my life that I was just really angry about. And I had to process all the energy. Um, what, what seems to be really key is balancing the fierceness and tenderness. In the book, I use the metaphor of yin and yang because it's 
kind of a well-known metaphor. The yin is more of the soft, nurturing, tender energy, and the yang is more of the powerful, fierce, even angry energy sometimes. Not always angry, but it can be angry. And uh, really working intentionally with these two different energies, I prefer to work with them if possible as physical sensations as opposed to thoughts, because the second the head starts going about how this person did such and such, I mean, you're just, most people are off to the races, but if you just feel the anger in your body, okay, what is it? Well, it's energy. It's often hot. It's, you know, pulsing. And so if you feel it and allow and welcome it, even thank it, thank you so much for trying to protect me. And then also invite in the, the tender, softer energy to kind of be there at the same time. So I like to call it caring force. It can be forceful, but the force isn't harmful. It's caring. And then allow those, you know, and I, I kind of have people um, just invite these two energies to, to merge and integrate. There's something about setting your intention that seems to allow things to have, unfold more easily. Um, and so that's the way I work with it in the practices in the book. I've got a, f- a few different ones on anger that I have I found helpful personally. And I think I've heard that other people find them useful as well. Yeah. You know, one of the things I noticed, and I think you even highlighted in this in the book, and I've noticed it in my own experiences, often the track that I follow in an emotional, like an anger will be, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's not fine. I'm angry about it. And then that gets followed by embarrassment or shame, or I shouldn't have done that. And and I was finding as I was reading through some of the practices in the book, this idea of working with both energies in the same practice helps to balance that so you don't get caught in the shame spiral later. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it's still, so, so shame is also a natural arising, you know, and shame is also a natural evolutionarily um, created emotion because that feeling of shame helps you not do things which angers a group members, which kick you then kick you out. So for instance, if I get, if I have reactive anger and it's something that my wiring and I, I mean, not to blame my mother, but I, I can see I, I come by it honestly. It's just part of my nervous system. Shame still arises if I have reactive anger that are, that arises, but I don't believe it, right? So I realize, okay, that anger was there for a purpose. And if I stepped out of line, obviously I apologize. But it, So I actually hung a, a picture of the Hindu goddess Kali over my meditation cushion to remind myself that this, this fierce energy is actually a force for good. We don't have to be ashamed of it. I mean, if we're shame, if, if our shame arises, we can hold that tenderly. But we don't have to buy into the notion that it's foreign or that we shouldn't be angry or that you know we're supposed to have it together all the time. These are all natural human emotions, and the more we can accept them, the more we can work with them productively. So I loved that you brought Kali into the book. I thought that was awesome. Will you talk to us a little bit about who Kali is and, and what that energy is in a practice? Um, so Kali is a Hindu goddess. Um, and some of my girlfriends, we talk about our Kali and like, you know, because I think a lot of women have an intuitive sense that this is a really powerful energy. And it, it's interesting because it's a female energy, even though it's men who are supposed to be angry and not women. But she's a Hindu goddess. She's like this blue-black color. And if you see images of her, she usually has um, multiple arms, which are carrying severed heads. Or she also has necklaces, like bones and heads. And she's usually um, stepping on her, her flailing husband, she, um, Shiva, you know, <laughs> who, she's, who she's killed or harmed in some way. And she's really, really scary and ferocious. 
But then if you understand the symbolism, why is she cutting off heads? Those heads symbolize illusion, the illusion of separation, the ego. What Kali actually cuts through is the illusion of separate self. And that ferocity that rises up is actually harnessed to see like the sword of truth just cutting through the illusion of separate self and ego. So actually, Kali, although ferocious, is a very powerful force for good. And we don't want to belittle her. You know, we want to like bow down and pray to her, (laughs) see her beauty, see her purpose. Um, Again, we, we don't want to run away with it. Of course, of course, of course. And yet, you know, there's some great books on women's anger, like Rage Becomes Her, uh, Angry Woman. And, and these books are so powerful because it shows how the suppression of woman's anger is partly how we were kept under for so long. You know, we were just told to be nice and to be compliant and to be sweet and just like, don't rock the boat. <laughs> you know, so anger anger is a very important emotion. And so the, the tenderness helps it keep it from being unbalanced or harmful. Hmm. You know, another way I saw this yin-yang energy showing up is I noticed throughout the book, I mean, obviously you're a scientist and there's research and there's data and, and supportive facts for these concepts. And also you mentioned, I think at one point you work with ancestors in your practice and you meditate under an oak tree that feels like a grandma. There's some very sort of divine feminine energies interwoven in. Yeah, no, I'm very, as part of my practice, I've got, I think in a way my my Buddhist practice is a little bit more left brain, a little more rational because I like it because it makes scientific sense. But then I have a whole other intuitive side where, um, you know, my my best friend is very much into the divine feminine and and ritual. And I mean, I love that as well. So again, I don't, I don't believe it or disbelieve it. It's just like a different system. And I think both are, are valuable. And I think it would be foolish of us to think one way of knowing is the only way of knowing. Hmm. And so could you tell us a little bit about what your own personal practice looks like? Well, so I have an altar in my bedroom and I light candles um, and I say prayers. I'm actually going away uh, tomorrow for a woman's retreat for a week with some women friends. And we're going to do ritual and whatever that looks like. But you know, the, the ritual way of knowing, the intuitive way of knowing, it's not thinking things through. It's, it's um, well, I can't even describe it. This It's kind of an ineffable, <laughs> ineffable, if I'm saying that word right. It's, it's not a way of knowing that we can describe clearly with words, but it's something that you do and something that you open to. And I've had a lot of um, really important healing from that way of knowing, uh, just as just as much, if not more than, you know, going through therapy and rationally understanding things, both, both are important. Both are important. Yeah. You know, my own experience has been, um, incredibly logical. I want to think through things. I want to understand them. And, uh, I came to meditation through yoga. So I was a yoga teacher and I was doing all these yoga teacher trainings and we would have these meditations and inevitably somebody would be like, Oh my God, my third eye opened and the color purple shot out. And I saw, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I am like in the back rolling my eyes and being like, oh God, like, can we just get to the point of this? And then of course, you know, one day I'm meditating and like my third eye opens and purple shoots out and I see the same rainbows everybody else sees. And I thought, oh, okay. 
Yeah, that's the thing. So um, I don't see vision so much. I'm not very visual, but I'm very in tune with energy in my body, movement of energy in my body. And I feel all sorts of things, dramatic things. And I would be foolish to say, just because I can't explain it, it doesn't exist because it is an actual experience, right? Now, it also would be foolish to say, well, I know exactly what it is. You know, know, I don't know what it is, but it's it's something. (laughs) And so I think for me, having that open-minded stance and just saying, well, I don't know, but I'm just going to work with it as it is, seems to be the best way through. I I think either extreme can lead to foolishness. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So I don't know if I said specifically, but in the title, this book highlights that it is really for women to harness their power. And I wonder as um, as you're talking to women, what are you wanting us to take away? What are we carrying forward from this book? Yeah. So, and by the way, some of my men friends have said, why not? Why aren't we included? And it's really just because it, it is a, an imbalance between yin and yang issue caused by gender socialization. Men are allowed to be fierce, but not tender. Women are allowed to be tender, but not fierce. So the woman is written specifically for women to focus on how we can honor and develop our fierce side. Um, It would have been too complicated to say, well, for men, it works this way. And for women, it works that way. And then also um, the history of patriarchy is an important backdrop that needs to be talked about. Like there's a reason that women aren't allowed to be fierce, <laughs> right? There's a reason why women are told that our only place is to care for others. That's because it supported an unjust system. And I wanted to be able to bring in history and feminism. And I mean, it's mainly a book about practice, but this is the backdrop. It has to be the backdrop because it's not like women were just born this way, right? There's a lot of socialization that prohibits our anger. And also, for instance, I'm more young than yin by nature. So people, people's gender identity does not correspond to how they're socialized, as we know. I'm a very young woman socialized, you know, to be a certain way. And people who are, let's say, um, transgender, they're really socialized in a way that doesn't fit their identity. And so I think that one of the messages of this book is everyone needs to find their own unique voice, should be allowed to find their own unique voice, should be invited to find balance, to develop all sides of themselves. Um, and that is an act of compassion. That we don't need to follow what general socialization says. For instance, the whole thing about relationships, women are, have been told throughout time, we, you need a man to, to count to be valuable. Is that true? Like we need to question those things. Self-compassion would say, no, I don't need a man to tell me I'm valuable. I can tell myself I'm val- valuable. You know, um, all, all the types of injustices in the world that we've been told are just the way things are. We just need to put up with it. Is that true? And so I'm really hoping what this book will do is give not only ideas, there's a lot of ideas in here, but even more important, concrete tools and practices to help people become their true selves and to make the change they need to in the world. Yeah, I see that coming through. I, you know, one of the things I find so valuable in a meditation practice is the invitation to take a more of the emotional spectrum, right? Like you, you get, I think the invitation is to embody more of it rather than less of it. Yes, exactly. And there are pieces that are less talked about like anger Yeah. 
And so maybe conceptually we get, sure, I should allow anger as part of my practice. But then you sit down when you feel angry and you're like, oh my God, I have no idea what to do with this energy. And so the practices that you've been sharing in the book, they're giving us these tools to start to work with these more difficult energies. Right there. Yeah. Yeah. So I find it, like I say, I developed them all for myself. Um, (laughs) And then I thought, okay, I'll write them down to see if they help other people. Yeah, I'm grateful for it. Thank you. <laughs> so the epilogue of the book is titled Compassionate Mess. Yes. Which is a phrase I'd heard you use previously. And yeah, I have love that phrase. Oh, me too. Oh my gosh. I love it. I have worked with it myself. I've written my own meditations about being a compassionate mess. Uh-huh. And I wonder if you would just talk to us a little bit about what does that mean for you? Yeah, well, that's something the meditation Rob Nairn said once, you know, the, the goal of practice is to become a, simply to become a compassionate mess. Mm. And so in other words, um, we give up trying to be perfect. We give up trying to get, get it right. This doesn't mean we don't try as much as we can to be our best and to do our best, but we give up our attachment to getting it right. And we, we focus more on just opening our hearts, right? So your, your goal actually shifts away from getting it right and toward opening your heart. And therefore, moment by moment, as we fall down, we make mistakes, we get out of balance, whatever it is, that our goal is simply to open to whatever's happening with compassion. And with that, we get rebalanced and we get recentered again. Um, and, and I've known that for sure in my own life. I'm still, after like 30 years of practice, I'm still a mess. Probably marginally better, but you know, it's it's pretty marginal. But I am more of a compassionate mess. I can say that for sure, right? So when I when I make mistakes or I do something wrong, I'm fairly quick to compassion for that mess. That's that's a habit I've been able to build through time, and and it just really makes all the difference because if you rely on the compassion as opposed to getting having it all together, it's a much more stable source of um, you know resilience over time. You know, I think the first time I heard you say that phrase. I have two children and my son, my older child must have been a baby because I I remember that being a very messy moment in my life. I was like, I had already been meditating. I felt sort of very grounded and centered. And then I had a child and it was this whole recalibration. And that phrase really landed in that particular moment. I've carried it forward too. Yeah. 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 It's helpful. Yeah. Well, I wonder if you would be willing to lead us in a little practice that sort of works with this fierce and or tender energy. Sure, sure. So I'll lead a practice that's called the self-compassion break, which is when we intentionally bring in energies of um, uh, mindfulness, common humanity, and kindness. And what I'll lead it, you'll you'll see in the book, I've got a self-compassion break for tenderness, for protecting, for providing, for motivating change. But what I'll do this time, so I'll just kind of leave it open so people can decide what what it is that they feel they need in the moment, and then they can bring it to themselves, however, whatever feels fitting. It's a very flexible flexible practice. Pretty much we're we're baking a loaf of self-compassion bread, and there are three ingredients. They're going to be mindfulness, common humanity, and kindness, and we'll layer it in. And then, um, you know, self-compassion works its own magic. Okay, so I'll lead the practice. Um, uh, I'm going to close my eyes. It helps if you close your eyes. You don't have to, but I find it helps to go inward when you close your eyes. Maybe just taking a moment to settle into your body. So feeling your feet on the floor, the weight of your body on the chair. 
Okay, so I'd invite you to think of some situation in your life right now that's causing you some uh, stress or maybe distress. This could be um, maybe a relationship issue you're having. This could be something you're feeling badly about yourself for. Uh, Maybe you've got a health issue. Maybe you have something really stressful going on in your life right now. Just take a moment to choose something to work with that feels right. We don't want it to be so difficult that it's going to overwhelm you and you won't be able to learn the practice. Something, But something that's challenging for you. All right, and then just call the situation up in your mind's eye. Remind yourself what's happening. Some of the emotions you're having around what's happening. Okay, so the first thing we want to do is to... um, Bring in some mindfulness to really acknowledge and validate and see clearly what's happening right now. And so that might look something like saying to yourself, wow, this this is really hard. Or, you know, this hurts. Or maybe it's something more like this is unfair. It's not okay. Or maybe this needs to change, right? So just see, bring in the mindfulness to acknowledge what it is that's happening. Really validate your feelings and your experience. And then I would invite you to remember uh, interconnectedness or common humanity. In other words, you know, I'm, I'm not the only one who feels this way. I'm not alone. Or maybe it's something more like, you know, there's nothing wrong with me for feeling like this. Part of life. And then we want to give ourselves some kindness because, because it hurts. So one way to do that is through touch, right? Some sort of touch that feels either soothing and comforting or else strengthening and supportive. So maybe it's both hands over your heart center. Or maybe like a fist over your heart, kind of a fist of strength with the other hand over it. Some touch like that. And so saying some words of kindness and support to yourself that, that are exactly what you need to hear in this situation. And so, so maybe these are words of tender acceptance. You know, it's okay to make mistakes. You're worthy just as you are. You know, I care about you. 
Or maybe they're more kind of fierce words, uh, either of encouragement, like, I got your back, you can do this. Or, you know, bravery, you know, you could speak up, you need to speak up. Or draw a boundary. You know, and if you aren't exactly sure what it is you need to hear, you, you may imagine that you had a really good friend who, had, who was in the exact same situation that you were in. Just kind of imagine that thought scenario. Your good friend was in the same situation you're in. And kind of thinking, what, what might you say to that friend? What might they near, need to hear to be well? Again, honestly. Not just sugarcoating, but what you honestly need to say to your friend. And then you can try that with yourself. Okay, and then you can let the practice go. So that's the basic idea is intentionally bringing in the three components of self-compassion, adding in the touch. And if it can feel a little awkward at first, I will admit, if you aren't used to doing it, it's like, who's that voice? And I don't believe that voice. You don't have to believe it, right? We're just kind of setting the intention. We're starting a new habit. And eventually over time, it starts to feel more, more natural and habitual. I love the fist over the heart and then the hand on top of that. That is a beautiful integration of those energies. That's cool. Cool. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Is there anything I didn't ask that you? No. Okay. That was great. That was great. Maybe just to tell people about my website if they want to find out more. Please. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so so I've I've created a website with a lot of resources. For instance, you can take the self-compassion test I created to find out if this is something worth you practicing with. I've got research articles. I've got guided meditations. I have info on fierce and tender self-compassion. I just have a lot of stuff on my website. If you Google self-compassion, you'll find me. And so that's a really great place to start if you want to learn more. And the book, Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power and Thrive. You can get that anywhere. Yes. Anywhere. Get it anywhere. Yep. Awesome. Well, I am so appreciative of your time and your work. It's meant a load to me personally, and I know to all my listeners as well. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mindful Minute. If you're enjoying these episodes, please consider leaving me a review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps others to find the show. To learn more about my live classes, virtual meditation retreats, my meditation app Shoreline, or to make a donation to the show, please visit MerylArnett.com. Thanks again. I'll see you next week.